Would you turn again, please, to Philippians chapter 2? Philippians chapter 2. Children, if any of you haven't got the uh, sheet to fill in and would like to, or your parents would like you to, maybe that's more to the point, then uh, I expect there's still some available at the back by the door. Philippians chapter 2. Now, this isn't usually read in carol services. It's probably not thought of by most as a particularly Christmassy passage, but it's very suitable as a part of the Bible to read at Christmas. And that's why we're hearing from it now. That's my main reason for choosing it. But also because it sets us straight on a very important issue. And the issue it sets us straight on is this. What is the evidence of God at work in the world? If you're looking to see, is Is there a God and is he involved in this world at all? What would you look for? Would you look for impressive signs in the sky or visions of angels? Would you look for the church being powerful, maybe the political power of the Vatican or maybe a mega church in America that's got the rich and the influential coming along? What would you look for as a sign that there is a God who's involved in this world? Well, the evidence of God at work is quite the opposite from the things I've just mentioned. God displays himself in something looking very weak and ordinary, but that is actually quite extraordinary. And Philippians 2 tells us that something looking weak and ordinary is actually two things. So let's see God displaying himself in two ways, two ways here in Philippians chapter 2. And the first is a weak looking person, a weak looking person. We begin with the baby in the manger. Why is there so much fuss about this baby in a manger? I remember seeing a children's Christmas book called The Touchy Feely Christmas. And it was very touchy feely. It was one of these ones with all sorts of different um, materials for a toddler to touch. But by the end, you couldn't tell what the point of the story was. It was about a baby in a manger, but you didn't have any idea what was so special about him. What is so special about him? Verse six tells us. Who being in very nature God. Here's the baby in the manger. And it says who being in very nature God. The words here mean he didn't just look like God or seem like God. He had what is essential to being God. He had the nature and characteristics you must have to be God. Now, we have to be careful how we say that, because it's not as if there's a species called gods. And if you have the characteristics of that species, you're almighty, you're eternal, you're all knowing, then okay, just like a zoo, you know, a zoologist could put you in the classification gods, just like something that's furry and produces milk gets in the classification mammals, and something scaly might get in the classification reptiles. This one must come in the classification gods, got the characteristics. No, no. The Bible insists there is no category gods, there is just one God, one creator, all else are creatures. One God, but he's Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And what did God the Son do? Let's move on in verse six. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. This is a little difficult to get in English. 
I don't know what it's like in the Chinese or Korean or Romanian Bibles or any other language, actually, because I don't know any other languages. I noticed that the translation Anthony read was helpfully slightly different and matches what I'm about to say. You see, it's easy to think like this. Jesus was a sort of God. He had the characteristics of a God, but he was a junior sort of God. But he was a good boy. He didn't grasp at getting to the level of the big chief God. It's easy to think that's what's going on here. He had the nature of a God, but there's a big chief God above him and he didn't grasp at being at that level. No, he stayed at his junior level. That would be wrong on a whole in a whole load of ways to think like that. It's actually saying what what Anthony's translation said that he read to us. Jesus didn't consider being equal with God something to use to his own advantage, something to be used for grasping selfish ambition. Selfish ambition, I've used that term purposely. We'll come to it later because it's in verse three. He didn't use being equal with God for his own selfish ambition to grasp on, to take advantage of it. No, he was equal with God, but he let go of it. He didn't cling to it. He didn't use it in that way. There's a book called It's Our Turn to Eat. Our Turn to Eat. And it's about this man called John Githongo. And he was an official in Kenya, appointed by the president to root out corruption. But he found his job was impossible and his life was under threat of death because corruption was so rife and so embedded in the system. In fact, he even discovered that the president who appointed him was totally corrupt. That's how he ended up having his life under threat. The book shows how it was totally normal in his society to use power to grasp for self, to line your own pockets, to use power for selfish ambition. Sadly, that's been very normal down through human history. But our verse tells us God the Son was the opposite to that. He didn't do that. So positively, what did he do? Verse seven but made himself nothing. The words literally mean he poured himself out. He poured himself out. Now, this is people have got in a muddle about this. What did he pour out of himself? So some people say, well, he poured out of himself his knowledge. So he didn't always get things right. So we can dismiss things in the gospel we don't like because he poured his knowledge out of himself or he poured his power out of himself or he poured his Godhead out of himself. So he became man and was no longer God. No, they're all wrong. Because it doesn't say he poured something out of himself. It says he poured himself out. And that's a very different matter. You see, it's not he poured something out of himself. It's he poured himself out. Think of a mother who is qualified to be a solicitor and she's got a career ahead of her that society would admire. But she's not pursuing it because she's instead giving herself to bringing up her children and just doing hard, obscure work each day, which you don't see the result of for years and years and years to come. And that isn't admired by society like a successful barrister is. And it doesn't get measured in government statistics and show up in the national income. That is in a little way like God the Son. He poured himself out for others. And he became, as our verse says, well, it says made himself nothing. He became a nobody. In the world's eyes, he was a nobody. 
What he does doesn't get measured in the national statistics. As he lay in the manger, he didn't give off a glow like in the Christmas cards. As he walked along the streets, he didn't have a halo like in the stained glass windows. As he worked as a carpenter, he didn't have queues of people forming. Let's see God the Son at work. He didn't win awards for great carpentry, as far as we know, because he came not to be a celebrity, but to be a servant. Let's move on in verse seven. But made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. He came to give himself for others. He came to do verse four. If you have a look back at verse four, he came to do that. He came to look out not for his own interests, but the interests of others. He came to do verse three, to treat others as more valuable than himself. That really is what verse three means. It it doesn't mean trying to persuade yourself everyone else is better than you. Jesus didn't come for people thinking they're better than me. He came for people he knew full well were worse than him. But he came to treat them as if they were more valuable than him. That's verse three. Treat others as if they're more valuable than you. That's what's so special about this baby in a manger. God, come down so low for others. But let's move on to something even more astonishing. We go from the baby in the manger to the man on a cross. Verse eight. Now, have a look carefully at the words of verse eight. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. Now, what's odd about that? Children, can you look at the words carefully and see, do you notice something odd about those words I've just read? And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. What's odd to me is, hasn't he already humbled himself? Wouldn't you expect it to say, by being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself? It was by becoming a man, he humbled himself. Well, that's true. But it says, and being found in appearance as a man, now he humbles himself. In other words, he's going to go even lower. How's he going to go even lower? He's going to become mortal. Do you know what the word mortal means? It means someone who could die. God, the source of life, became someone who could die. If he lost enough blood, he'd be dead. And he didn't just become someone who could potentially die. He walked into the jaws of death and had his blood poured out. And that brings us to the lowest point. Verse eight again. And became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now, have you noticed that that there have been executions in the USA in the news recently? Donald Trump's trying to get through as many as he can before he's not president. And so that's been in the news. And I saw in the news a picture of an electric chair. Have you seen an electric chair? There's this picture. And there were these straps on the arms to strap someone down and a strap around the head. And there were sandbags piled up at the side of it. I thought, what goes on that needs sandbags piled up at the side? The very sight of the electric chair was horrific. And that's what we're supposed to think when we hear the word cross. It is horrific, like an electric chair, but more so. Horrific. That's the low point. 
that Jesus, in very nature God, went to. And yet here, at that cross, at that horrific torture instrument, here is the evidence of God at work in the world. The Apostle John, in his gospel, says, we saw his glory. The glory of the one and only son of the father, full of grace and truth. And it's at the cross that you see God's character. You see grace because there he will pay. So we receive for free forgiveness, love, welcome God with us. You see truth because you see he won't pretend we're okay. He won't say, oh, well, you're not that bad. Let's let's pretend you're not too bad. You see grace and truth displayed at the cross. God's character. What's the evidence that God's involved in this world? That he hasn't just left it to go its own way. It's a weak looking man in a manger and then on a cross. But that's 2000 years ago. What's the evidence that God's still involved in this world? What's the evidence today that God's involved We move on now to weak looking people. We've had a weak looking person, singular, but now we have a whole load of weak looking people, millions of them. And we move backwards to verses three to five, three to five. Uh, But before we read verses three to five, here's your church history for today. I like to drop in a bit of church history. Uh, Children, listen, here's an interesting person. In 296 AD, there's a little boy born. And he became the man known as Athanasius. Now, there's a funny name for you. I don't know what it means. Athanasius. He was one of the church's great thinkers down through the history of the church. And his thoughts and writings and influence meant the Roman emperor got to hear about him and didn't like what he heard and tried to get him. And one Sunday, Roman soldiers burst into church to arrest Athanasius But the monks there in church smuggled him out and hid him down a well and then later in a cemetery. And then for years, he had to live in hiding in the desert. But Athanasius there in the desert wrote great Christian writings. Big influence he was. And what's his relevance to us today? Well, one of his sayings was this. The son of God became what we are so we might become what he is. You get that? The son of God became what we are so we might become what he is. Or to put it slightly simpler, he became like us to make us like him. I reckon there's so much gospel in that. He came down to our place to raise us up to his place. On the cross, he became far from God, which is like us, to bring us near to God like him. He became subject to the fall so that we, like him, might be freed from the fall. And then we could go on loads of ways. He became like us to make us like him, including this way. Why is Philippians 2 verses 6 to 11 there? Why is it in the Bible? What's the point of it? Well, the point is to make the lesson that God has been making through Paul in verses three to five. He's just been telling us how we should be humble and how we should put others above us. And then he says, and this is just like my son, Jesus. Let's read verses three to five. 
Verse three, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, and on we go. You see, do you see how it's fitting in? It is there to amaze us at the son of God, but it's also there to say to us now, go and be like him. What is it to be like him? Well, it is to value others above yourself. Remember, that's the better translation of verse three. Treat others as more valuable than you. Now, this is not pretending you are worse than everyone else. It's not pretending everyone else is better than you at everything. I expect many of you remember Eric Robertson, don't you? His wife just had a baby last week or the week before. Children, do you remember the tall basketballer? And he came here to this church while he was playing basketball for Leicester Riders, while they were winning every trophy there was in the country. And imagine outside at our basketball hoop afterwards, and you're all playing basketball, and Eric says, oh, you're all better than me. I'm no good at basketball, really. That wouldn't be what verse three is saying. That wouldn't be humility. That's that's just fake. And that is actually a show in a different sort of way. That's actually a sort of pride in a strange, twisted sort of sense. It's not saying do that. Pretend everyone else is better than you. It's saying value others above yourself. Value others time above your time. Value others needs above your needs. Value others' strengths. Even value others' weaknesses. Wasn't Jesus doing that? He saw our weaknesses and he came to deal with them. He put them above his comfort and his reputation. To be like Christ is to value others. As if they're more valuable than us. To be like Christ is to be a servant. Children, do you know what a servant is? A servant is there for another person. A servant puts himself out. A servant's time is not his own. A servant isn't there to be noticed, isn't there to look impressive. A servant isn't there to put his achievements on social media. Look what I've done today. He's there to quietly, without fanfare, without blowing his own trumpet, to get on and serve others. Here's a good test of servant heartedness that uh, when when someone said it, I thought that I was a bit surprised by it. But it it actually makes complete sense. And it's really obvious. How do you react when someone treats you as if you're their servant? Oh, That's hard to take, isn't it? They treated me as if I'm just their servant. Well, there's a good test of your servant heartedness. How do you react when someone treats you like that? To be like Jesus is to not be a pushy person who must have your ideas approved and your plan followed and things go your way as if you know better than everyone else. To be like Christ is to be a non-pushy person, a non-showy person. I'm often trying to show you that real Christianity can be quite different from appearances. So, So here's a made up example, although sadly it's all too believable. James preaches great sermons and he's written Christian books and his conversation and his leading of prayer is really impressive when you hear it. But James loves people to notice all that. 
And if you listen carefully to him, you'll, you'll soon notice that he loves to drop into conversation his achievements and what he's done to serve in the church. Bianca is quite different. She'd never write a book or preach a sermon. Uh, you don't hear much from her in home group discussions. Not that she's got no ability, and she's certainly not one of those people who goes around saying, I'm no good, I'm not clever enough. That's just a self-obsession in a different sort of way. No, she's just quiet about herself. But if you were a fly on the wall in her room, in her home, you would you'd discover that she prays for people with real thought and care and faith. And she gives with generosity. And she she spends time with people and her conversation points them not to herself, but to Jesus. Bianca is Christ-like, not James. I'd have good hope that Bianca is a real Christian, but not so confident about James, despite all his preaching and writing Christian books. Weak looking people. Weak looking people. That's how God works in this world. I think the church is in danger, actually, of falling into a trap on this because we're in a situation, aren't we, here in in the West where we've been used to having cultural power. The church has had power, lots of power. It's been establishment and it's been respected for hundreds of years, but no longer. I hope we all recognise we're no longer establishment, we're no longer respected, we no longer have that power. And our reaction to losing that cultural power can be to try to get it back. We must have influence, we must have politics, we must have the sort of power the world recognises. But God works through weak-looking people. And we often forget that. Children, do you know who Jeff Bezos is? If you don't, I'm sure you've heard of Amazon and he owns Amazon and that makes him very rich. In fact, he is reckoned to be worth one hundred and eighty eight billion dollars. Can you imagine one hundred and eighty eight billion dollars? That means if he gave you one million, he'd still have one hundred and eighty seven million. No, one hundred and eighty seven billion, nine hundred ninety nine million left. Wow. Now, wouldn't it be great if he were a Christian? Yeah. And then what influence and money the church would have and what a lot of good could be done if Jeff Bezos was a Christian. All that money and influence. Think of how people would listen to him. But no, no, that isn't the answer. Jeff Bezos isn't the answer. God hardly ever works like that. Yes, there are some rich, there are some famous turned to Christ, but God hardly ever works like that. He works through obscure people who aren't rich, who aren't influential, who aren't mega talented. I'm not trying to insult us all, by the way, but who are Christ-like and weak-looking and serving others and humble. God's, God's work isn't through human power. God's work is through human weakness. He takes the weak things of this world to show up the things that look strong. Uh, An illustration of this, I've got two books here. I've shown them before. This one's called Radical. Radical. It says on the front, 
uh, is trying to get us to see that each of us is blessed by God for a global purpose. Be radical, live a radical life and change the world. God's got a global purpose for you. And then a couple of years later, a different author wrote this book, Ordinary. And I think you can even see from the covers that he's getting a bit at the book Radical. He's written it sort of in opposition. And you can tell even more when you look on the back. It says your life was meant to be ordinary, not radical. So there you go. Uh, Authors getting at each other or at least one getting at the other. Your life was meant to be ordinary, not radical. But actually, I reckon both are true. I don't reckon they clash that much. Because it is radical to be willing to live an ordinary life in a Christ-like way. It is special to be willing to look nothing special as you just quietly get on and serve others. Looking like a nobody like Jesus did. Yes, the world needs missionaries and evangelists and it needs the, it, it needs people with a big vision. But the world more needs And God usually works through just ordinary looking people in their workplace, in their home, in their communities who are non showy servants like Jesus. And God uses that. What the world values, verse three calls, it's an interesting phrase back in verse three, verse three calls it vain conceit. It means empty glory. What the world values and what we in the church attempted to think, yeah, that would get us power and influence and we'd do really well then. The Bible calls it empty glory. But Jesus bringing himself low. Results in verse nine, God lifted him up to real glory, full, not empty glory. That's the route to glory for Jesus, but also for us through him. How do we know that God's at work in the world? What's the evidence he hasn't just left us to ourselves, but he's actually involved a weak looking person 2000 years ago. But also weak looking people today who who are changed, who are radical, because being willing to be like that is radical. It's unlike the world. And it takes the work of God to make us like that. And there's a lesson. There's a lesson for you if you're sceptical about God. Maybe you're looking in the wrong place. Maybe you're failing to see how he works because you're looking in quite the wrong way. There's a lesson for you if you're seeking God. What good news? What is God like? Well, what he is like is shown at a cross where God the Son sacrificed himself, looking weak, dying to serve others. Well, you put your trust in him. There's a lesson for you if you belong to God. Follow Christ's servant way. There's the way for you to display God's work. And there's the way for us as a church to change the world.